Thank you so much, Nick, for that prayer this morning that leads in beautifully to what I want to share with you. I'm going to continue this morning in our study of the New Testament book of Titus, but as I do that, I want us to be very mindful on this Memorial Weekend that the reason we are able to worship so freely, the reason I am able to share with you so freely from the Word of God is because of those who have given their lives in all the various branches of our United States military in order to protect the great liberties and freedoms that we enjoy so much. So let us be thankful to God today. Let us be thankful for those who have died to protect those freedoms and liberties. This morning we're going to be looking at Titus chapter 2 and verses 11 through 14. Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14. And I want to say right from the beginning this morning, this is considered a monumental passage of scripture in all of the Bible, but especially in the New Testament. One commentary that I was reading said this is one of the most important passages in all of Holy Writ. Titus 2, 11 through 14, as it explains, even as Nick prayed this morning, the greatness of our salvation. The Apostle Paul is writing to Titus, a young elder on the island of Crete, and he says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Well, our first point this morning, our first point is the grace of God has appeared. And that is the title of this message and a very powerful statement from Scripture. God's plan of salvation was revealed and fulfilled at a specific time in history. So this is what I want you to think about with me this morning. The plan of salvation was devised in eternity past. It was prophesied in the Old Testament, but it was fulfilled and revealed at a specific time in history. It was revealed and fulfilled with the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. So as I go through this this morning, I want you to think that the grace of God is both a plan and a person, and the person is the plan. Okay, it is the plan of salvation, but that plan of salvation is succinctly defined by the person of Jesus Christ and all he accomplished for our salvation. That is all wrapped up in this term, the grace of God has appeared. And that's what it says in verse 11, the first part. Titus, for the grace of God, has appeared. 
And our minds are drawn, and maybe yours are this morning, to the Gospel of John. That is the last book that I preached through, and it takes us all the way back to John chapter 1 and verse 14, where it says, The Word, Jesus Christ, the Logos, the Word became flesh. At a specific time in history, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. It reminds us of John chapter 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law gave way to the fulfillment of what the law was preparing us for, training us for the coming of the Messiah who would be our salvation. So at a time in history, grace appeared. We think of the angel to the shepherds. Excuse me. For unto us is born this day in the city of David a what? A savior who is Christ the Lord. A savior. The grace of God appeared. It encompasses his virgin birth, his incarnation. It encompasses his perfect life and obedience. But especially and most specifically, it refers to his substitutionary death on the cross and his glorious resurrection. And so Paul says, the grace of God has appeared. In the second part of verse 11, it says, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now this does not mean, as some have tried to teach, a universal salvation that everyone automatically gets saved. It doesn't mean that at all. I think John Piper brought it out best when he says it means bringing the offer, the offer of salvation to all people, to all people. And this is actually a great missionary passage. The grace of God appeared bringing salvation For all people, for people of all people groups in every part of the world. It ties to our earlier two sermons in Titus 2. It brought salvation to older men. It brought salvation to older women. It brought salvation to younger women. It brought salvation to younger men. It brought salvation to children who believe. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing the offer of salvation for all kinds of people. Now, what is this plan of salvation? Well, actually, the text itself defines it for us. We're going to do something a little different this morning. We're going to go from verse 11 down to verse 14, because verse 14 defines verse 11. Verse 14 says this, referring to Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness 
and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's the plan that was devised in eternity past, prophesied in the Old Testament, and fulfilled and revealed at a specific time in history. Jesus Christ gave himself on the cross in his death and subsequent resurrection to redeem, to save, to purchase us, those who believe from all lawlessness, from all disobedience to the law of the Lord. Sin can be defined in a number of different ways, but I like the definition that our Awana children have, and that is sin is simply disobedience to anything in the Word of God. Disobedient, or excuse me, sin is disobeying the Bible. It's disobeying God. That's what sin is. And Christ came to save us from our bondage and slavery to sin, our bondage and slavery to lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, to take those he redeems, he saves, and to make them like Christ, to conform them to the image of Christ. As we say in theology, to take them through the process of sanctification, where they live less and less for their flesh and desires and more and more yielding to the Holy Spirit and to Christ, purifying us in our lifelong journey upon this earth. And he purifies us for his own possession of people zealous for good works. So that's the thought. He saves us. He takes us through the process of sanctification, of purifying us for the purpose that we would be zealous to do good that we would go about our families, our workplaces, our communities. In everything that we do, we would be zealous for good works, to go about doing good. Jesus said, So let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. We were saved for the sole purpose of doing good works. I shouldn't say for the sole purpose or for the purpose of doing good works that bring glory to God. And so the grace of God has appeared, devised in eternity past, prophesied in the Old Testament Fulfilled and revealed at a specific time in history. This is exactly, exactly what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Same thing, amazing. When you compare scripture with scripture, how these truths are taught over and over again. It says of God, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through, watch this, through the appearing 
of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Before the ages began, he gave us the plan in Christ Jesus, which has now, in a specific time of history, been manifested through the appearing of Jesus, through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who did what? Who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For the grace of God has appeared. But this grace of God doesn't just save us, it trains us. Did you know that? Throughout your entire earthly life, you are being trained by the grace of God. You are being trained by your own salvation. The Holy Spirit lives in you, and by means of the Holy Spirit, Jesus lives in you, and you are constantly being trained. And you are being trained to do two things, which we're going to look at. First of all, the grace of God trains us to stop giving in to sin and to live our lives for Christ. To stop giving in to sin and to live our lives for Christ. That's number one, verse 12. Training us, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us, verse 12, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. If you are truly born again, if you are truly saved, you will desire to live for Christ. You will. Not maybe, not might be. It would be nice if you did. No, you will. It's the absolute byproduct of your salvation. Your salvation is training you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness here is almost exactly the same as lawlessness and verse 14, ungodliness is anything, any action, any thought, any motive that is in disobedience to the word of God, in disobedience to the law of the Lord, in disobedience to the Bible. We are to renounce ungodliness. We are to renounce, to choose, to stop giving in to disobedience, and we are to renounce, to stop giving in to worldly passions. Worldly passions refers to both our inward sinful desires and the outward temptations of the world. Worldly passions, it is those inward passions that feel so strong at some times to do wrong, to think wrong to think thoughts of lust, to have attitudes of anger, gossip, all kinds of sin, and also to be tempted, allured by the temptations of this world all around us. When the grace of God appeared and you came to know Christ as Savior, you are now being trained 
to say no, to stop giving in to sin, and you have the power to do so in Christ. It's not like you're some helpless victim trying to overcome. You have the resurrection power of Christ living in you, and it is training you to use it, use it to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You are a child of God. We saw this in the last two messages. So live like it. So live like it. Really, self-control, upright, and godly lives are three ways of saying basically the same thing. First of all, we're to live self-controlled. Interesting. Titus, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, likes this term. In verse 2 of chapter 2, older men are told to be self-controlled. In verse 5 of chapter 2, older women are to teach younger women to be self-controlled. In verse 6, the younger men are to be self-controlled. You are to live self-controlled. Self-controlled and I've shared this with you before, is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It means to be Spirit-controlled. Rather than being controlled by ungodliness and worldly passions, be controlled by, yielded to, submit to the Holy Spirit that lives within you, teaching you, training you the Word of God. Live under the control of the Holy Spirit. Also, it is training you to live upright. Upright refers to righteousness, to your relationship to other people. With other people, treat them with kindness. Treat them with care. Treat them with justice. Treat them with fairness. When they speak ill about you, when they treat you poorly, you return it like Jesus did with kindness and gentleness. You choose to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives. Godly here refers to your relationship with God, your daily walk with Christ. You are devoted to him. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You are passionate for him. You're passionate for his glory. You want to see people come to know him. So your salvation, your salvation right now, even as you sit in this auditorium or you watch by live stream, your salvation is training you, training you to say no, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, but to say yes, to live for Christ to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Well, our second point this morning is waiting for our blessed hope. So first of all, the grace of God trains us to stop giving in to sin and to live our lives for Christ. Secondly, the grace of God trains us to wait joyfully for the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, we're being trained to stop giving in to sin 
and to live our lives for Christ. And we're being trained to look for Jesus, to look for his second coming. And in verse 13, we have one of the most beloved verses in all of the Bible, waiting for our blessed hope, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, in the time that we live in right now, we don't hear as much about the second coming of Christ. But it is to be vitally important to every single day of our lives. There is an aspect of our Christian lives every day in which we should be looking for the coming of Jesus. Waiting. It means, the word waiting here, and I love the definition, it means eager anticipation. Living with eager anticipation for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, looking for the second coming of Christ. Now, as I studied this out this week, this is not specifically a reference to the rapture of the church. I believe that the rapture of the church is included in it, but waiting for our blessed hope is not specifically just a reference to the rapture. Okay? It is a, rep- it is a reference to all aspects of the return of Christ. So it includes the rapture of the church, But it also includes, at the end of the tribulation, the visible, physical, second coming of Christ where he returns to earth with the holy angels and with the redeemed of God, us, who will be with him. And he comes to judge and destroy his enemies and then to set up his millennial kingdom. And he comes in great glory. So this is a reference to both 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 19. It's all of it. It's all of it. We are waiting for the return of Christ. That's our blessed hope. Our Savior is going to return. He's going to make everything right. One day he's going to destroy his enemies bring judgment, and set up his glorious kingdom. And we're going to gladly and joyfully submit to his rulership over all things. We are to look forward to that day. It's a part of our assurance. It's part of our excitement. And if you will, it's part of our adrenaline for living for him every day. Now, why is this so important? Because as you look to the coming of Jesus, which could happen at any time, and as you really live that and believe that and think that, it affects the way you live. You know what it does for you? It purifies you. Remember verse 14, who redeemed us from all lawlessness and to purify himself, a people for his own possession. It is to purify. You are to be purified by looking forward to the coming of Jesus. No one says this better than the Apostle John. 
And I know some of you are very familiar with this, but let me go over it with you again. 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, so important, goes right along with verse 13. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be, future, has not yet been made known, but we know, now watch this, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then verse 3. Everyone, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Wow. As you look for the return of Christ, as you eagerly anticipate the return of Christ, you are being purified. Let me ask you this. How do you want to be living when he returns? Do you ever think about that? What do you want to be doing when he returns? You don't know when it will be. As the old hymn says, maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening, maybe soon. We don't know. But what do you want to be doing when he returns? Do that. Do that. You see, The grace of God, your salvation, is training you. It's training you not to give in to sin. It's training you to live your life for Christ. And it's training you to look for the second coming of Jesus. To always have that on your mind. So let me try to bring that together as we close this morning. The Bible, especially the New Testament, teaches every Christian to simultaneously live for Christ in this world and to eagerly anticipate the return of Christ and the glory of heaven. I just want you to think about that with me this morning. We are taught in Scripture to simultaneously do two things every day. To live for Christ and to look for his return to live for Christ, and to look for his return. We are to do both of those things at the same time every day. We see this. We see this in our everyday lives. We find ourselves engaged every single day, every single day without exception, in spiritual warfare. We see spiritual warfare going on all around us in our nation and in our world. But I see more than that. I see spiritual warfare going on inside of me every day. And I have to choose to yield to Christ, to submit to Christ, to submit to his lordship, to submit to his word, to pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate his word and teach me his word and apply his word to my life. But at the same time, I'm thinking I long for that day. I long for that day when things will be made right. I see injustice. I see wrong. I see sin. And I say, oh Lord, how long? How long before it will be made right? We see this. We see this when someone we love goes home to heaven. We do. You know... 
when we do a funeral service here, as I work with families who see their loved one go from this life to the next, heaven becomes so real. And we say things like, you know, he's in a better place or she's in a better place. Folks, they're more than just in a better place. They're living what we all long for. They're in heaven. And if you know him as Savior, you're going to be with them. And it just becomes so real when someone goes home to be with the Lord, when someone dies, when someone passes away. It just becomes so real. And there is this sense in which I want to live even more for Christ. My loved ones with Jesus, and I'm going to live for Jesus until I go to be with Jesus and my loved one again. We see this in our suffering. We see this in our suffering. We want to, when we suffer physically, mentally, emotionally, we want to be a good witness. As I've worked with and talked with people who've gone through a terminal illness, you know, they want to be a good witness. They want to live for Christ, but at the same time, they just want to go home. I can't tell you, can't tell you how many times I've had someone tell me, Pastor Tim, I just want Jesus to take me. I just want Jesus to take me home. I'm ready. Why didn't he just take me now? And you see that. You see that simultaneous living for Christ and yet longing to go home. We see this in our loneliness and emptiness. All of us, every single one of us, have quiet moments, sometimes at unanticipated times, where we just feel lonely and we feel empty. And this is what we think. And we think it rightly. There's got to be more than this. Do you ever think that thought? You know, I get up every day, I kind of do the same thing, go through the motions. Man, there's got to be more than this. You know what? There is. There is. There's joy in Christ and living for him, but our ultimate joy, our ultimate longing, our eager anticipation is to be with Jesus. It is. Folks, this is a very important passage of Scripture. So important that I'm going to challenge you this summer to memorize Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Okay, that's our summer challenge. Last year, I gave you a summer challenge. I challenged you to memorize John chapter 15, verses 1 and 11, the vine and the branches, such an important passage. Because in verse 5 of that chapter, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So that was our challenge. And this summer, so you've got till the end of the summer, I would like to challenge you to memorize Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. You can memorize it in whichever version of the Bible you're most familiar with that you do your memory work out of. And again, as I said last year, I'm not going to put pressure on you, nor are the leaders of the church going to come and quiz you and test you. Nothing like that. This is for your enrichment. 
This is for you to grow strong in Christ. So put the pressure on yourself. Try to memorize this passage by the end of the summer. And remember that the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God is both a plan and it is a person. Because Jesus is our salvation. And you are being trained. You are being trained every single day to stop giving in to sin, to live your life for Christ, and to look for, anticipate the blessed hope, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that the grace of God appeared, revealing and fulfilling your merciful plan of salvation. And we thank you that it constantly trains us to live righteous lives and to wait for the glorious coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, help us to live for you and to wait for you every day. In your name we pray, amen.